0: This episode is sponsored by Adult Time. Adult Time, porn done differently.
1: Sex and speakeasy is not for children. No speakeasies are for children, especially this speakeasy. We will be using very adult language.
0: Very, very, very adult This is Sex at Speakeasy, the podcast where we take deep dives into the history of sex and even deeper dives into our drinks. I am Angel Russell, Masters of Science in Psychological Science and Board Certified Sex Educator.
1: And I'm Steve Russell. It's not pronounced Long Island, it's pronounced <laughs> long Island.
0: Long Island. <laughs> Just all one word. <laughs> Heavy on the G.
1: <laughs> yes. So speaking of Long Island, we should transfer now over to uh, our favorite segment where we visit with such a good boy there never was.
0: Such a good boy there never was.
1: Your cousin Aaron.
0: All right. This is uh, Aperitifs with Aaron. And back on the horn is our mixologist, our drink master, our brewmeister, Mr. Aaron Leedy. Aaron, say hello to our friends at home. Hi, I'm Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, one of these days we need to do, like, the drink needs to be one of your beers for sure.
2: Hey, that would be wonderful. Be yeah. Very
0: cool. So, hey, just, hey,
2: as soon as the brewery opens, you'll have to do like a guest recording from there. That'd
0: be so awesome.
1: I guess right? maybe we could have recorded this last night at your birthday party with the banana beer.
0: Yeah, you know, that would have been so weird with everybody here.
1: Yeah, so noisy.
2: It was a comb- Have we acknowledged that it was a birthday party, but also like a multi-celebration?
0: Well, I hadn't. So the last time we recorded, I had submitted my thesis. But since that time, I have successfully defended. And um, sometime between the time I wake up and the time I go to bed tomorrow, I will send the final final of everything to... Uh, my advisor, and she will say, yep, that looks great. And then it will go to the University Commons and I'll be all done. So for the episode, uh, why don't you tell us uh, what we'll be drinking?
2: Sure. So this one was kind of fun, right? Because we always like to have it fit with the theme. And so when Steve told me, I was like, huh, I wonder. So I sent Steve a couple ideas and he and I got together and decided this was too good to pass up. So uh, tonight we're doing Long Island iced teas. I
0: love long island ice it is when i was a bartender it was my favorite drink to drink and to make
1: so this right? is a an episode on arranged marriages
2: yes and and when we, we thought about it this is just the perfect arrangement perfect marriage of so many different alcohols that that there was nothing better i mean we always try to have the drink in it's gotta it's gotta fit somehow and this is this was just a no-brainer so i'd love to hear how you made it when you were a bartender because there's a few different i mean the origins are murky Though, I mean, some say it went back to the 20s. Most people say it was, you know, designed in the 70s. There was a version that may have been older. Um, and it can be made a few different ways. How, how do you make it?
0: Okay, so I'm used to using, like, you know, the the pour spouts that they you put on bottles at the bar. Um, sure. And so I'm used to doing, getting a pour spout and doing, like, a three count with each of the liquors. And then sour mix and then a splash of Coke. And so it's gin, tequila, vodka, rum, triple sec.
2: Absolutely, yeah, and then equal that's parts how I do. Of all of those.
0: Yeah, and so just do it. Do the same pour count for each one, and then sour mix mostly to the top with a splash of coke.
2: Most of the recipes I'm familiar with call for simple syrup and then lemon juice. But sour uh, mix, is... bar mix, yeah, exactly. So either or, you know, if you got bar mix, bar mix, if you don't have bar mix sitting around, you know, squeeze a lemon in there and put a little simple syrup. You know, it's funny. I w- I'll have to make my my old buddy Bevan listen to this at some point because he and I get really heated about this. He buys simple syrup from the store. Oh. Which is the stupidest shit I've ever heard.
0: <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> you make it? Make it. It's just. water water and sugar sugar. (laughs) yeah but i just it's i mean but i guess it depends on like when you're drinking and you've been drinking like you want it to be easy but that's why i think sour mix is great because i don't have to deal with the lemon and the sugar and the water and all that i just sour mix is perfect i will buy sour mix like we did buy sour mix
1: yeah i don't have to go to walmart to buy lemons
2: just you know be aware that when we do margaritas one of these days it will not be with sour mix.
0: It will not be with sour mix. All right, well, we'll see it's how not. that goes. You'll have to really make it very clear to me ahead of time what the rules are on the margarita situation because I am also perfectly fine with a sour mix margarita. <laughs>
2: there, there's an Archer episode where Archer very clearly explains what should be in a margarita. He's right. But this is not a margarita episode, so we'll no. have to come back to that. So, yeah, just like you said, so it's equal parts okay. vodka, rum, tequila, gin, and triple sec. Anywhere from half an ounce to an ounce, depending on how big the drink is and how drunk you want to get. So even if you pour lightly, uh, this is not a treat for the faint of heart, right? No, this is
0: a powerhouse. Steve and I are going to share one because, like I said, I have to be doing APA style all day tomorrow. And I'm officiating a wedding in the morning, which is fun. Nice. Yeah. And uh, speaking of arranged marriages, this one was not arranged, but I'm officiating a wedding in the morning. That's fun. So anyway, uh, so I'm going to do, we're going to share one, put it all in the same glass. And just, oh, I just dribbled on myself. So, Steve got, t- tell us about the booze you picked out, Steve.
1: I haven't had one of these in uh, maybe like 15 years. And uh, <laughs> and I, I remember it making me feel bad. And I remember it wasn't exactly awesome. And I don't know, It was it was never like a fancy drink. And so I didn't sure. want to spend a lot of money on the fancy booze and so i just bought what i call the mad men uh brands so okay bacardi cuervo Beefeater, and, and uh, i we still had a, the sh- some of the chopin left over from one of the earlier episodes so that is a nicer vodka because it's but, the
0: only vodka you'll drink or
1: else i would have used well, what they use in uh mad Men, smirnoff i think yes smirnoff. was was the bad uh,
0: yeah they, they had a contract with them right
1: yeah and so, so that's, it's, it's not like the well, but I definitely didn't uh, venture past like $15 for any of these bottles.
2: Yeah, and I totally understand that. I, I'm at the point in my life where, where I don't have cheap alcohol in the house anymore, but I'm not putting good alcohol in, an alarm in, something, that, in something that mixes gin and tequila together. I was going to say, this, bar, is, bar.
0: this is from, one, from a bartender to the audience I love... Uh, this is not a drink to spend a lot of money on (laughs) this is uh i don't like the well version like i this is a good i think steve did a good job of like mid-range brands you recognize like the well stuff will give you really wicked heartburn and you won't enjoy the drink that said you don't need top shelf shit for a long island either at the end of the day it's
2: I really like the point you make, right? Because, I mean, we've all done, like, a, a four-horseman shot, right? Which, for some reason, is just awful. But this drink is, you know, it, it tastes good. It's so weird, but it's... If, I, I, I like it too.
0: If it's well-made, it tastes how it sounds. It tastes like iced tea. Yeah. Like, it's good. It's, it's a good drink. Like, I... That's... I don't know. I remember being a young bartender, learning how to make this for the first time, and it felt like al- alchemy to me. I was like, how did right? you put all of that asshole liquor in one bar and get a drink I actually wanted a drink out of it. I shook
2: it, but I'm going to drink it. you fan. like Professor Snape there for a little I bit. I did. Yeah.
0: I did. I felt very like being a little kid and making potions in the bath with all the shampoo. Like, I, I felt like I had that moment. So, <laughs> all right. So, I've poured in all my liquor. and
1: This is why I became a bartender. bartender
0: yes. And I'm not going to go all the way to the top because we're using kind of a... Feisty glass. Our glass is very big. We're using this like oversized um, beer glass that's got like it's a night before Cl- Christmas thing, and then our splash of okay, coke. Okay, so
2: it's like a like a large pint glass. Almost. It's like a very large. It's pint it's
1: glass. way more than a pint. It's kind of a hourglass shaped and very tall.
0: And so the trick is with the coke is the coke is what gives it the color of iced tea. So the coke yep. is almost irrelevant to the taste for the most part so if you're making it in like where I'm at a larger glass if you're making it like a standard pint glass then you're going to just fill sour mix mostly to the top splash of coke and then that then you're good because that'll give you what you need but in this case it's a bigger glass so I'm just going to it's it was like three splashes of coke because um, I I do want that iced tea color and then I'm going to everybody's favorite sound (laughs) And do you want to get a straw, Steve, or
2: are you going to sip right off the top? I typically don't use really do straws enjoy, at all. I just want to say on this one, I really enjoy how Angel was like, step aside, boys. <laughs> I got this I got. Right?
0: <laughs> Listen, we
2: all have our skills. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right, Steve, there you go. You tell me. How'd I do? Looks like iced tea. the first Long Island iced tea I've made in a decade, but I bet I still got it.
1: God, yeah, just it kind of just tastes like iced tea. It's good, right? Yeah,
0: Ugh. isn't that weird? That is so yes. weird. So good at Long Island's. Sorry, I was so excited when you said this is what you were picking.
2: Yeah, it just, again, sure, can that's tell a damn good drink. A better cocktail for I what can't. It is you guys can be talking about tonight.
0: No, that was a when Steve said this is what you picked for every reason. I was like, this is genius. These are freaking dangerous. I will say. I think that's why they that they're so attractive to young drinkers is your goal is to get fucked up, but you haven't developed a taste for alcohol yet. (laughs) So it doesn't alarm you that you're putting all the booze in one glass, (laughs) because you don't know what any of it's supposed to taste like yet. And you end up getting a drink that literally just tastes like a refreshing summer beverage and it's dangerous and amazing. And so, yeah, this is, but, um, I, it, it's a good party drink. It's a good celebratory drink and it's a perfect drink for our theme.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is the definition of a one and done
0: <laughs> or a half and done as Steve and I will do. <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> is, John, cool. is John, is uh,
1: John Mulaney from Long Island?
2: I, you know, I don't know. I, I lived on Long Island for three years. Did you? You were a child, right? I, I was very much a child. That's where my sister was born. I was going to say, <laughs> you were like a baby born. baby.
0: Okay, I'm going to, where's John Malini from? We have the internet Because in now I'm
1: just thinking about his uh, bit about um, iced tea on SVU. You mean like <laughs> when someone <laughs> drinks too much or snorts, snorts cocaine? Or bets the House on the Ponies.
2: Alrighty. Yeah, you got it, man. You
0: got John Mulaney's it. from Chicago.
1: Oh, that's Chicago. right.
2: Oh, of course he is, right? Yes. Um, Home of the Salt and Pepper shot. Diner. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guys, I, I hate to say this, but I can't do this yet. I still don't. Uh, John Mulaney has been my favorite for 10 years. I still don't forgive him. Well, I don't know. For what? You may have to cut that out. For what? Oh, you know, just he and his wife were so cute.
0: Oh, for getting divorced.
2: I mean, it happened. I know, that's not my place to say it. It does. I
0: know. Are you sad? Because Mommy and Daddy broke up. <laughs>
2: yeah. They were so cute. with. What was their little dog's name?
0: Mm. I don't remember. I remember... I want
2: to Petunia.
0: Is it not it, Something like that. Uh, I remember... I, don't, I, don't I, I get his dog and Eliza's celebrity. dog
2: mixed up.
1: Blanche's dead.
2: Yeah, Blanche died?
1: Oh, yeah, a while ago. They have a new dog now.
2: Oh. Did you guys... Natalie told me the the girl who played Anna in Frozen died today.
1: Kristen Bell.
2: Oh, no! That doesn't seem right. Now that you mentioned <laughs> it,
0: <laughs> John Mulaney's dog is Petunia Tender. Uh, I knew it.
2: Anna from what? If Kristen what,
1: Bell died today, we're canceling the podcast.
2: Hold on, hold or at no, least no, the episode. Just, important. It can't be. Kristen Bell played Anna.
1: Yeah, and she had this hilarious thing where, like, her daughter only wanted to dress up as Elsa for Halloween. And uh, when Kristen Bell said to her daughter, oh, well, I can dress up as Anna, she said, no, I also want you to dress up as Elsa.
0: Which is really funny.
2: Oh, okay, hold on. Oh, the very
0: Japanese different. voice actress yeah. of Anna died.
2: Okay. <laughs> yes, I just, I just, yes. her. Yes, I, I found it the same time you did, which is still very sad. I'm sorry for their family.
0: It's really sad, though. She was really young, and she's 35, and she fell at her That's hotel. Yeah, she f- she was in her hotel, and she fell.
2: Anyway, we... So we, there we go. I that digress. Was,
0: so, so, yeah. Um, and Well, I guess that'll give us a chance to talk about... Uh, maybe we can start by talking about arranged marriage in Japan. I don't know. Maybe does Steve have facts about that or something? I do. Steve's going to teach me... I, I have done very little personally... In way of preparation for this episode which is going to be fun for the listeners so i like the listeners will be learning while steve teaches us and i'll
1: give you a sneak peek arranged marriages are getting more popular in japan oh yeah
2: that's interesting you know i'll have to listen to this podcast and we can have this conversation because there definitely seems to be uh perks to it
0: yeah well i went to high school with a girl whose family is from a culture that did arranged marriage and she said that was always her fallback plan that if she like couldn't find somebody she was into, she would just tell her parents to pick someone, out, pick someone out for her.
2: Are you going to, are you going to bust out some of the like success statistics about them? Because they are phenomenal if you're from a Western culture, not used to that.
0: Like, yeah.
1: Yeah. And um, uh, you guys uh, saying this feels really weird because I know that depending where you are in the world, that if you wanted to be in an arranged marriage, likely uh, it would be the two of you getting married. Yeah, that would have been the arrangement.
0: Because you would keep the money well, in the family, right?
2: Well, there's a lot of reasons.
0: Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh,
2: which, which I don't need to hear. Not, not that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm sorry, Angel. Not that you're not. You're look, Angel. You're you're great. I just let's just no. You look, you're great. You're great. This I is awkward. Am, no, I'm sorry. No, you're great. No, are Angel. I'll recover. You're a cat.
0: I'll <laughs> recover. Okay. Listen, I'll just transport <laughs> myself back to a time in high school where it probably wouldn't have bothered you <laughs> if somebody mistook me for your girlfriend and not your cousin, is all I'm saying. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I high was a little and
2: a solid part of college. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, on that potentially awkward note, depending on where our listeners are in the world, we are gonna move on My. to the episode. Um, you're gonna be brewing the rest of the night or you're going to bed? <laughs>
2: I'm going to bed. I have to work tomorrow. My, but my my head is literally in my hand right now. So yeah, yeah. Steve, Steve won the game tonight. Way to go, Steve!
1: Hey. What was the
2: game? Um. But yeah. So I'm I'm going to bed. No, we brewed. Uh, we brewed last night. Two nights ago. But. Well, um, uh, yeah, it was it was
0: yesterday. Yeah, because I feel like you're texting about brewing we did yes
2: it was so, all right well y'all
0: have a great time thanks for coming to my party and thanks for the the every the the beer you brought and and the fun treats and and the the idea on the drinks and we'll i'll text you tomorrow and we'll check in for the next episode oh i got it we got to get together and plan it because it's uh we're gonna hopefully do it at the speakeasy
2: oh that's right the next episode will be here
0: yeah yeah we got to get that together so I'll, I'll reach out to you tomorrow and we'll talk about all the things
2: that was good. All right. Have a good one, y'all. Good night. Bye. Bye.
0: Launched in 2018, Adult Time is a streaming service exclusively for adults. It is a platform built by fans who believe in a future where mature audiences can safely, securely, and proudly have a place in their lineup for premium, award-winning adult content. Dubbed the Netflix of porn by mainstream media outlets, Adult Time offers an extensive catalog of over 250 channels, 60,000 episodes, and eight-plus new releases per day from some of the most recognized studios, including Girls' Way, Pure Taboo, Burning Angel, Fantasy Massage, 21 Sextory, and Vivid Entertainment, alongside exclusive original series, feature films, and much more. Find them now at adulttime.com adult time porn done differently all right that was a pair of with Aaron. as always such a pleasure i'm really hoping that steve's going to edit out a large portion of all of the nonsense (laughs) because there was a lot of it but who knows
1: (laughs) just a lot of us making the dog unhappy
0: yes yeah i don't know how much i'll get edited out but we had to take a bone from the dog and yes. that's what happened.
1: So, because we don't want to put that sound in your ears. This is not that type of ASMR podcast.
0: No, those, I mean, oh, God, I hate those noises. Mouth noises,
1: dog wetly chewing on bone
0: noises. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So, tonight's episode is arranged marriages.
1: It is. It was originally on famous arranged marriage.
0: <laughs> because we are living in a Western culture and very much as a is the way of the Westerner confused about how the world works and really under the impression that the way we do things is the way people do things? And when we started looking into it, we realized um, some things. Uh, Steve, well, we, well, Steve really was like, "Oh my God, uh, I think we probably should have named this podcast something else." So, Stephen, me explain that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So arranged marriages were really popular up until less than a hundred years ago, and so having a title being called arranged. Uh, famous arranged marriages in history might as well have been called famous marriages in history.
0: Yeah. So um, there are, well, you were telling me uh, there are more, more arranged marriages than there are not.
1: Yes. And so even today, and I was just trying to look up that statistic. I, I was, I missed it uh, getting the, um, Exact number or the uh, where it came from.
0: It was like fifty three percent or something. Fifty
1: three percent of marriages today in the world are still arranged in one way or another.
0: It's wild. Yeah. So when you say in one way or another, like, like what do you mean? Like, like what are the possibilities for arrangement?
1: Well, marriages come typically they're seen in like four different flavors, uh, based off of. Uh, consenting groups so on one end you have forced marriages where parents or elders or somebody tells two people that they're getting married and they have no choice Um, they have no say in the matter Uh, one step above that um, you have the parents or elders set two people up but the bride and the groom have veto power and they're able to say no don't want it a step above that you have Bride and groom are able to meet cute and want to get married, but they have to like get approval from the parents or the elders and the parents or elders have veto power. And then you have autonomous marriages, which is just parents or elders have no say in the matter.
0: Like what we did. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so uh, when you, I think arranged Marriages, uh, forced marriages are typically kind of bundled in with arranged marriages. And so those first two levels, most marriages today still fall under those first two.
0: Really forced or.
1: Or uh, where the bride and groom have veto power.
0: But it's arranged. But, by but the it's families. still set up. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I think, so I, I, I gotta say when I think arranged marriage, like I didn't realize it was that complicated, but actually that makes a lot of sense. Like, Anytime your family's involved in the exchange, there's an arrangement of sorts. And so I guess it makes sense that arranged marriage is like a spectrum, um, which I've never given any thought to. But I think for most people uh, who aren't in, and maybe I, I'm not gonna say for most people, I think for Westerners, when we think about arranged marriage, we think about betrothal. We think about like parent, like parent, like parents committing you to a spouse just making that decision on, on your behalf, you're going to do what your parents have asked you to You meet
1: them the day of the wedding the day,
0: or yeah. Or even a little bit before or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's really like a uh, new girl when uh, Jess's friend, what's her CC uh, and um, what's his name? CC and Chevrang. Yeah. Um, CC and Chevrang have their arranged marriage and um, CC Ce- panics because she hasn't seen Shivrang's shivrang's Ch- little shevrang. <laughs> she hasn't seen Shravang's penis. And she's like, What if I hate it? And then um Ce-C's mom or Chevrang's mom, I don't remember. One of the two of them is like, Oh, you're worried about his penis. Like, yeah, that's really common. Like, because the idea is that you you haven't slept together, you don't really have a dating relationship, you might know each other because probably your families grew up together. Or, like you said, when we were talking to Aaron, like you might even be in each other's families in some level because it's not uncommon for families to kind of keep things like in the relational group. And so, um, but I think when we think arranged marriage from like a Western perspective, we really have this very like mass media. uh, I'm going to say like kind of an anti- Um, black and brown people like view of it a little bit. Like there's a little bit of villainizing of it. Mm -hmm. It's usually depicted as something that like, like quote unquote foreign cultures do. It's usually something that is painted to be a little bit absurd. Um, You know, you don't usually see Western culture depicted in like a really neutral or positive light. It's usually depicted as something nobody wants or something that you have to overcome. Um, Which honestly, marriage has things you have to overcome no matter what version you do. But like, it's just really interesting to think about that more of the world is involved in some sort of arranged marriage situation than isn't. It's just really myopic how Western culture creates these like, pictures of things when you like pan out and
1: yeah. And it, it wasn't even that way. It wasn't unpopular amongst Western civilization until relatively recently mm-hmm. um, in our histories, uh, even in the United States, like we were well into being the United States and arranged marriages were still, you know, a very, very common thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, I guess I think of, but then I'm particularly referring to, like technological advancement with like media Mm -hmm. and like media depictions and like Western culture, media depictions of these things. Oh yeah. Today's. And that would coincide with, with arranged marriages kind of falling out of fashion. And so,
1: well, I mean, as a very, uh, as, as a big callback to an earlier episode, do you know what caused the fall of popularity of arranged marriages? Industrial revolution. It was the industrial revolution because,
0: Yeah, go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. So look at our episodes building on each other.
1: (laughs) We actually talked about that too. Uh, People being able to date and find their own people and everything just because there was a lot more independence. Before that point, most cultures didn't really place a whole lot of value on the individual. And a lot of people didn't have the ability to be able to take a personal interest in stuff like how are they going to build their house Even when it comes to like mate selection and things like that, the value was placed more on the, the family or the household and the longevity of like the name and things like that. Like when people looked at how well a couple was doing, the main metrics that were looked at were you had two two people get married and it wasn't like, are they happy? It wasn't, are they in love? It was, can they support their elders when they get too old to work? Can they support their poor siblings if their poor siblings, if, if, if their siblings can't afford you know like their own homes or anything like that? And uh, are they having kids? And those were the three aspects of a strong couple and it was very much not about the couple themselves. It was all just about the family and the household.
0: You know, it's interesting, like you're saying all this stuff. And I think about how pervasive a lot of that need is even around the world today. But, you know, we talked about here, like in Western culture, like until very, very, very recent history, that was still like, those were still driving factors in how marriages, like how we determined whether marriage was successful. And I, And I'm going to tie this together, I promise. I um, give Aaron crap a lot because he will offer like an evolutionary psychology um, response to how, uh, like when we do the sex and gender lecture in his intro to psych class, he will, he'll usually offer the evolutionary psych reason. Why things are a certain way, and I will answer with the um, social psych reason why things are a certain way, and I kind of give him a hard time for evolutionary psych-, psych being sort of irrelevant. But historically speaking, it's not really like it. We hear like those are very. I can see a lot of evolutionary psychology in making relationship decisions based on things like shelter, survival resources, familial compatibility, like passing on the genes, like passing on family wealth, passing on stability. Can we care for each other? You know, can we take care of the ones in our herd who can't take care of themselves? Like there's really a lot there. And so it makes sense that we still have a lot of holdovers from evolutionary psychology in modern psychology and why, we're still using evolutionary psychology to explain modern behavior because it's historically, it's not, it's not like it's been a very long time of history of those things, not being how we of that not being how we do things. I don't know if I'm making sense, but yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, especially when talking about things like survival, um, poverty is one of the biggest reasons why arranged marriage happens. And, you know, we're watching shameless right now. and, A big overarching thing is, you know, this is a family that doesn't have a whole lot of money, but they have six mouths to feed. It's six kids who are just like taking care of themselves. One of them is barely an adult and they have so many, you know, just so many mouths to feed. And um, you would see in a lot of cultures where especially if somebody had a daughter, daughters typically wouldn't have a chance to be able to make money for the family. And so they became like just a straight up burden on the family. And so arranged marriages, uh, especially child marriages were actually really popular in a lot of areas um, where you would have a poor family who had a daughter and then you would have like a family that wasn't wealthy, but like maybe a social rank up who had a son about the same age. And so what they would do is they would just pair these kids up, say they're gonna get married eventually. The daughter would move in with the wealthier family. It would be less of a burden on the poorer family. And then that girl would end up just be like free labor for the wealthier wealthier family family until they got married, until she got married to their son. And it kind of like guaranteed a partner for their son to be able to continue the bloodline and everything. Um, because a lot of it also comes down to, you know, just there aren't always a lot of available, eligible partners out there. And so exactly. being able to like set things up for the future, it's like it's like investing your money. You're just investing your kids yeah. into the future of something.
0: Well, you're also creating some future stability for your kids. You're yeah. kind of ensuring that they'll have a family, that they'll have offspring, that they'll have things that create life stability like being especially depending on what part of history we're talking about like being like a single adult has historically always had challenges but even more so his you know like throughout history when the more people we have together, the more we can pool our resources. And it's funny, you're talking about Shameless. I was actually thinking very specifically about the episode we like just watched, mm. where, um, so it's six kids and the second oldest kid, so the oldest is a girl, is a woman named Fiona. She's barely an adult. She's the one taking care of everybody because the parents are deadbeats. And the um, second oldest is um Philip. Like He goes by Lip and he is senior, about to be senior in high school. And he is... There, there's a lot of pressure on him to finish school because he is the smartest, definitely the smartest in the family. But he's like genius level intelligence. He's probably like, the
1: smartest person to come out of that neighborhood.
0: Yeah, maybe like ever. In the last century. Yeah, then. he's brilliant, and so it's very clear to everybody who meets him that him dropping out of school would be a real waste. But it's also the relevance of a, a formal education's kind of it's it's laughable in their neighborhood because they're dealing with issues of survival. They're just trying to literally make ends meet, make sure everybody's fed all the kids at every age level are pulling like a different role in summer jobs and all this stuff. And so it's just an issue of like, how can we all pool our resources to literally survive? And so they're putting this pressure on lip to finish school. And he goes off on this and nobody's ever said, you need to finish school so you can take care of us. But he, When he gets expelled or drops out or whatever happens, which isn't much of a spoiler, really, you watch the episode, it's very clear that things are sort of, you watch the show and it's sort of clear that things are heading in an unstable direction for Lip. Um, But when they kind of get to this point where it's not sure how he's going to go through his senior year and and Fiona, the older sister says, if you don't finish school, you have to get out. And he says, I'm not going to be your golden goose. I'm not going to put the, there's not going to be this pressure on me to be the one to go to school and take care of all of you and make money and, you know, whatever. And it was interesting because it hadn't occurred to me that he was feeling that pressure. But even just now you said like, you know, one of the th- one of the expectations isn't just that you'll take care of your elders. It's also that you take care of the family members who can't care for themselves, and that marriage is part of how we create gener- generational wealth. Like forming family units is how we collect and accumulate stability and wealth. And for Lip, his formal education is like a piece of that, but he had that pressure on him. And it just made me think of like how real some of these concerns are. It's just interesting, like his, yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: Besides poverty, there's there's a, a few other like really overarching reasons why why people might get what might or why there might be an arranged marriage custom
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, within a society. Uh, one of them is just that it's customary, or it might be part of a religion. Like there are many religions where you cannot marry outside of the religion, or maybe societies, cultures where you don't want to date out of your ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And then there's also, in a lot of places around the world just, and this goes back to poverty also, where if a parent takes on a debt they can't pay or they commit a crime, marrying off one of their kids might just pay for that. Like when we talk about like, you know, giving your kids to another family where they do labor until they get married. If you owe another family money and you can't pay for it, the government would come down and say, okay, give them your kid and your kid will work it off until they marry their kid. And uh, that actually happens across multiple continents. Like it's a a really, even, even today, like you see that still happening uh, quite a bit in a a few different regions of the world.
0: Uh, It's interesting. The first piece you were talking about, the like religious piece, that's something I never thought of as arranged marriage, but I realize now that we're having this conversation, it really is. I think part of the reason I didn't think of it is because it was very real for me. Like I was raised in a space where it was very important that your parents approved of who you were with and that making the kind of that there was this like illusion that you had like the choice and, and I guess to some degree you did, but it was like your choice was amongst a pool of suitors. And there was, um, we very much the church we were raised in very much, um, subscribe to subscribe to this like notion of courting that um uh if a boy was interested he would make his interest known to the girl's father and that with with blessing he would like court and I used like air quotes when I said that the, the girl and then that would consist of like just spending time at the house maybe going out on like chaperone dates or like group dates with other friends not a lot of time alone there wasn't a lot of there was any physicality between them was really discouraged and that you would court until you were ready to be engaged. And then again, parents were involved in that decision-making process. Approval had to occur. This is all a very long process, sort of like with the thesis defense. Like by the time you get there, you know, you've already won. Like you don't get to that point without knowing the answer is a yes. And then eventually get married. But all of this, the parents are really heavily involved in the process. And um, the approval of the parents is like a very big, important part. And it was, in that same culture it was really tied in with like purity culture and with um you did and i don't know if there's anything in your stuff about this but it was uh we we wore like promise rings and the ring was that we wouldn't have sex until we were married and that it would we were making that promise to god but like via our parents or like via if you had a dad like in, if you you know had your dad around, like he was part of that process. Um, not everybody's dads were like involved in it so much, um, mm-hmm. but um, you would you ha- you and you wore this promise ring. And I don't remember any boys having to wear them. I think it was a lot of maybe they did it. I don't I really don't remember. Um, but I remember a lot of the girls got promise rings and like did this made this promise and. And the idea was that you, so you're sort of like married to God and like married to the church until you were eventually found the person that you were going to court and then marry. And I knew people who did that process. I knew people who, um, like, I didn't stay the course on that one. I did have a promise ring when I was younger and stuff. But yeah, like I was really raised in this church that like, and I never thought of it as a quote unquote arranged marriage because I, again, in my head, arranged marriage was always like. Your parents pre like pre selected your partner. You were betrothed to them, like like in fairy tales. When they talked about yeah. your betrothed and that kind of thing, I didn't think of this, but I mean that really is a very similar. That's interesting to think about how alive and real that that still is, he, even here in the U.S. Like, there's a lot of that.
1: Yeah, and um, even in the U.S. today, uh, we see we see a lot of. Uh, arrange marriages with people that immigrate and that's largely because the family hasn't really like assimilated into culture yet and so you know you kind of just go with what you know Like, Mm -hmm. like you know you move to a city where you know somebody is living and there's like a small group or you still have ties to the country that you came from and so you would arrange you know somebody to come from that country to marry your kid or your kid... My kid probably wouldn't go back. you would probably bring the other uh, person over. And we see that a lot in first generation immigrants from all cultures uh, in the United States, and I bet anywhere else, but this, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. just where where I was reading about it. Um, and that it falls off very hard within like a generation because as everybody assimilates into culture, people are going to school, people meet all their people, meet new people. The accents drop after a generation and everything. You just don't really see that because you have that independence again, you know you aren't so tied to the local ethnic community uh, as you are just like melted into the pot, I guess you could say, you know,
0: yeah, it makes sense. That's really interesting to think about uh, one of the kids had a crush on someone at school who couldn't like has a rule where they're not allowed to date outside of their culture mm-hmm. and um I was actually I was really proud of um. I mean, the conversation I had with, with the kid was just, they were very understanding of the concept and very like, you know, you know, we can still be friends and that's cool. And very, they didn't feel like they had been quote unquote friend zoned or anything like that. It was just very, um, maybe we'll do an episode on the friend zone. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, it was, it was interesting. I was like, Oh yeah, that, ma- that makes sense. You know, like I, I, again, I don't, I, I guess I don't think about how prolific these ideas really are. So success rates, like, I know that um, obviously if it was just a flat failure, it would not have had the historical longevity that it has had. So, I mean, what is, what is a range marriage look like from a Like, are, do people speak positively about their experiences? How does that, how are they perceived by people in them? Are they, you know, like, what do people say about the, the, like,
1: When you talk about success, that really comes down to how you measure success. Yeah. Uh, How do you measure success in a marriage? Divorce rates? Hard to say. Like, very low divorce rates in in arranged marriages. But it's also within cultures that make it very, very difficult to get divorced.
0: And it's also, if the idea of... If the the preliminary notion of what makes the marriage successful isn't love if the preliminary notion of what makes a marriage successful is other criteria, like we've already discussed, then the criteria for divorce is different too. If love is the foundation, if the like, I married you for love is like the point, And then there is no compatibility or that love goes away, or there's some other like big factor that shifts the like s- stability of that love. Then that becomes a grounds for divorce by itself. But I can't imagine The fluctuating feelings of love being much of a grounds for divorce in a marriage where love is great if it exists, but the importance of it, it's maybe not the number one thing.
1: Yeah. And the importance not being love is actually interesting because um, I was reading um, a lot of these uh, cultures, the one of the, I guess, not strategic, maybe strategic reasons for doing the arranged marriage is the parents and elders kind of have like the life experience of not, of of going past the point of having like the rose tinted glasses, the new relationship energies, the bad decisions that people make at the very beginnings of relationships and everything. And so they're able to look at the things that we would also look at when, Mate selecting, like we most like we, we date the people around us yeah. that are about our age and about our economic status and similar we,
0: education we, level, similar interest level, sort of similar interests, like
1: similar we do values. That yeah, yeah, and, and so they're just able to do that over a longer period of time with their own social connections, and they're putting together people who they think will be compatible and who might have found each other anyway. And um, and so they're like, yeah, it's just, we take the, I, you could probably just say, you take an amount of the emotion just out of the equation, yeah, and just put together what makes sense.
0: I imagine there's an argument for that in terms of, like, well, I mean, there's definitely some real, like, if we're making a pro con list for marriage based on love, like, that's the reason. A lot of people get married, get engaged and married when they're still in that new relationship phase. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't mean that things won't work, but it does kind of skew your ability to make decisions um, and your ability to sort of understand what your needs are and see around those like long-term corners and kind of anticipate problems that might arise. And is this person gonna weather those storms with you? And I think there's also, especially for younger folks, an unrealistic expectation that you'll always have those butterflies in your stomach about the person. And so you're marrying the person that gives you butterflies in your stomach because you think that those butterflies are like the green light. And then they go away because they do, because it's impossible for them to last forever. And when they go away, you feel like you've lost the spark and you don't have feelings anymore. And there's nothing else there because mm-hmm. the whole relationship or at least a large portion of it was really predicated on that sort of fairy tale romance. You make me feel swoony like feeling. And I think that when I've heard people speak positively of arranged marriage, which is a lot, I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk very positively mm-hmm. about the concept, both from within and from and looking outside. It's it's not unlike people who use matchmaker services, except the matchmakers are people who know you really, really well, like they've known you your whole life. And they, in theory, have your best interest at heart, right? Especially modern day versions of arranged marriage, where there is this understanding that love is important. And so it's not that they don't want, it's not that they're like, we don't care if you love each other. It's that they understand that like love is just not enough. And so it's awesome to cultivate that love. And that's really possible in a lot of scenarios. But for a marriage to have longevity, which is usually how we measure the success of a marriage is how does it last? For a marriage to have a longevity, are we compatible? Do we have similar values, whatever? Who knows that better than your family members? And who knows that better than the people who have raised you and the people who have known you your whole life. And so when the village kind of makes that decision or is involved in the decision, then there's an argument for a potentially good match. The, the trick comes in, I think, what if I don't have a good relationship with my family or what if they don't know me very well or what if I kind of act one way here because we're very religious and so I know how to show up at church and I code switch and then when I'm not here, I'm actually a different person. And so a person I'm really well matched with actually wouldn't come from my culture or wouldn't come from that space, but I can't tell my parents that. And so when you start to kind of, if you're in there and you're driven to that and you're compatible to that space, it's probably a good system for you. But if that's if if you are not a good fit in that space for whatever reason, then a match made in that space is going to probably feel very tra- very claustrophobic.
1: Yeah, so as you can imagine, there's been a lot of surveys and studies done about not just divorce rates, but uh, satisfaction and happiness within arranged marriages. I and, feel like I and read and about that in marriages.
0: the Aziz Ansari book. Oh, really? I- I'm not 100% sure, but I feel like it's in there.
1: It's highly inconclusive. (laughs) Like, there are some studies that say autonomous marriages have a little bit higher satisfaction and happiness. uh, But most, just like, it's a toss-up. There's really no difference.
0: Yeah. I feel like I remember, um, I listened to the audiobook of the Aziz Ansari. Um, so the book I'm talking about is Modern Romance. And it's co-authored with a social scientist. And it's based in research conducted by the social scientist and sort of hosted by Aziz Ansari. And um, it, he talks about all these different ways people do romance all around the world and sort of throughout history. And so I know arranged marriage came up. And I remember I feel like it was there, but I remember at some point hearing like what you're talking about, that that it is a toss up. And I think, so from a psycho- psychological perspective, what I know about that is that it's, what, it's, it's the rule of psychology. How good is that? What's true here? The answer is always, it depends. Like that's the answer to every psychological question. It depends. So is arranged marriage better than autonomous marriage? Is autonomous mar- marriage better than arranged marriage? And I'm going to say the answer is, it depends. How are you oriented as a person? If I'm really well, like like I was saying, if I'm really well situated in my culture, if I'm really oriented toward the values that my family has, if I have a good open relationship with you know my parents or the people making this decision for me, and I trust them to really take my wants and needs into consideration when they're making these matches for me and I have a say in the process or whatever, like I'm probably very likely to be well matched and What we know about love, and what we know about like, um, so there's these different. It's like the Sternberg like love triangle or whatever. Um, It's a the sorry, I said it wrong. Stern love triangle, the Sternberg um, triangular triarchic theory of love, and so it's it's a triangle, and at the top of the triangle is intimacy, which Sternberg calls liking, and at the bottom if you're looking at the triangle, the bottom right of the triangle is commitment. So, but it's called empty love. So it's like, I'm committed whether or not the love is there. I'm committed. And then the other point of the triangle is passion, which he calls infatuation. And so you've got passion, intimacy. So I'm passionate about you. That's that lusty. I'm hot for you feeling liking. We have a lot of intimacy, a lot of things in common, and then commitment. We're together in this, no matter what. And so, uh, On the passion to intimacy side, in the middle where passion and intimacy come together, he calls that romantic love. On the intimacy to commitment side, where we've got the combination of intimacy and commitment, so not necessarily passion, just intimacy and commitment, he calls that companionate love. And then the bottom like base of the triangle where passion and commitment come together, he calls fatuous love, Um, but it's just that... So the stages would be that you sort of start with romantic love. So you've got passion and intimacy. I'm really lusty for you. Again, um, in a like modern view of like how romance is driven. So you've got like that. I'm into you. I'm super hot for you. And that's that passion. I like you. We're doing a lot of things together. That's that's that passion. Romantic love piece. And then we sort of swing over into um, or swing down into um, the passion and commitment. So we're gonna we're gonna make choices together. We're gonna we're gonna, you know, tie our lives together, whatever. And then the longer you're together, you sort of swoop into intimacy and commitment. And that's that companionate love. And so most relationships like settle into a companionate love space. And that's where you hear couples say things like, where did the spark go? Because what they're missing is the passionate love piece, because a lot of that is hormonally driven. And it's also made possible by the free time you have in the early stage of of a relationship before you have the commitments and responsibilities that a that you have the longer together, you know, you're, you're sharing finances, you've got kids, you've got jobs, you've got all this stuff. But when you're first together, it's just about the two of you. And so you have a lot of time to foster that fire. But the longer you're together, you know, you sort of settle into a routine and into kind of like a mundane day to day. And that like sort of We've been together ten years, or twenty years, or thirty years, and sort of settled into like a comfortable love together. That's that companionate love, um, and a lot of people think there's something wrong when they feel that, like, oh, there's something wrong with it because the passion's gone. But that's like a really normal, healthy part of how a lot of love like moves. And with arranged marriage. A lot of the way it gets described, oh, and when all three come together in like perfect harmony, he calls that consummate love, where the spaces in your marriage or in your relationship where you have kind of that trifecta of the passion, the liking and the commitment, he calls that consummate love. And he talks about like things fluctuate and that people with highest relationship satisfaction describe some version of consummate love where there's like some element of each of those things kind of existing. But that companionate love does characterize a lot of the later parts of your relationship. That passion is hard to sort of keep ignited. And with arranged marriage, you have to build into, you're already married when you're getting to know each other. And so you may not ever have new relationship energy. And new relationship energy is where a lot of the heavy lifting for passionate love comes from. your hormones are doing all the work for you. And so if you if your hormones are lighting the fire for you, you don't have to learn how to create a spark yourself. It's like having butane and you know matches and you don't have that you have to learn how to light your own fire in an arranged marriage you have to learn so it kind of works in a different order. you start with commitment. And you're committed and you're committed to the process, and that's how it is. You get to know each other over time. You start to get used to each other. You start to learn to like things about each other. For some people, that happens really quickly. For some people, that takes longer, but like you, you share space. And so you share your joys and you share, um, your sorrows and you start to kind of, there's an intimacy in that day to day sharing. And so that creates that like companionate love. And so they start in companionate love and then move through. But a lot of, When I read interviews and I hear things from people in arranged marriage, It's not that they don't ever have passion. It's just that they get at it from a different angle and it looks different than it looks in a relationship that starts with the roaring fire of new relationship energy. So if anybody ever wants to look into more of this like theory of love, it's Sternberg's triangular theory of love or triarchic theory of love. We can find a link and put it in there. It's Googleable, and there's like a little picture, but yeah, sorry, I went off on like a super tangent, but there's like psychological explanation for sort of these approaches to how people expect romance to look in a relationship and that none of it's wrong it's just sort of how we flow through things kind of based on how did things start
1: that's really interesting (laughs) like um, super
0: tangent sorry i'm
1: one i wonder if like there's less of a call for like how to get the spark back like relationship help type things like there's less of an industry for that in uh cultures with arranged marriages because they have to figure out how to tap into that without all the hormones. And so they don't need to learn how to tap into it without all the hormones because they didn't rely on the hormones in the first to place. To begin with, yeah. So, um,
0: well, I wonder. They should just be
1: writing all the books.
0: Right. Well, I I wonder if. I still think that, like, and this might be more common again post, and this is definitely more common post industrial revolution. Um, I mean, I think it used to be the case that. And it probably still is a little in some places, but it, you know, when we look at like Victorian era like writing and stuff, there was like how you treated your wife, and then there was like how you treated like a sex worker, like you would say, like a, like a whore, like I'm um, not my word, but how you might see it written, and the idea is that you would go for like pleasure, you would kind of go outside the home, and so like passion and pleasure were frivolous, passion and pleasure were distractions, they were unnecessary, they were fruitless, they were silly. they were for leisure, right Where commitment and love and respect that was something different. And so you you um, you had love with your wife, you had passion kind of outside that. And so I think it is super common in the human experience to have lust. And it's just that what we have called lust and where we have directed that like that lust has like shifted throughout time in terms of where like our moral compass lands as a culture or where um, where that's appropriate. Like it used, I mean, I've, you know, you read things again, especially like Victorian era stuff. It wasn't appropriate to be lusty after your wife. Like that was not the relationship. That's not what it was for. And now it's like, you, you would imagine there's something wrong with you if you didn't feel that or something. And so- uh, this sort of emphasis on passion and the importance of passion is new historically, and so I think that also factors into things like where has the passion gone? Um, again, if I have to create it, I think I still know what it feels like, and I think I still know when I do or don't want it. And I think people that ties back in a good sex ed, and I think cross culturally we know that that's like something everybody needs. But I do wonder if sex educators, I. I think, I just have, don't hear us talk about this a lot, but I wonder if sex educators would benefit from paying more attention to the level of arranged marriage and the culture to which they're educating or like the prevalence of arranged marriage and the influence of, of marital arrangement into the expectations we set up for how people like handle their sexual dynamics. Mm-hmm. So, and that wasn't really, it was just the thought I had after you said that like my, the way I prioritize passion will be different if I'm walking into this with passion not being the number one thing Sure. or the most important factor. So not that it's shy, shouldn't want it or whatever, but it's not the reason I'm doing it. And so I think that relationship coaches and educators and people who are kind of working in these spaces, especially um, out, because we're looking and we're, I mean, everything you're telling me, like, people in autonomous relationships and marriages are globally in the minority, but I don't ever hear this really talked about in, in big ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So it definitely gives, is giving me some things to think about.
1: Yeah. just the spaces we play in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Another popular reason that's becoming more popular. People are getting married later and later in life now. Mm -hmm. And we've dated in our thirties. What happens to the pool As you get older,
0: it's very. um, There's nobody. It's there's nobody. Yeah, it's it's very shallow. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: (laughs) And so, if we look at a place like Japan, and we were talking about this with Aaron, yeah, forty percent of women age twenty nine have never been married in Japan, and they're getting to. You get to that point in your life, you know, you're twenty nine. You might be out of college. You might be like. Getting to like that midpoint in your career where you're like super busy and everything, and you just don't have time to figure out who is going to be the right, a, a good choice, like who to give a shot, right? Like you don't want to rely on somebody's own self advertisement on their Tinder profile to to see if you know you're going to give another six months of your life to figure out if they're a dumpster fire or not.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so in Japan, it's actually becoming more popular for still younger people but you know people who are well into their adulthood now who have never been married uh to go back to their families communities and matchmakers uh to find suitable partners Partners. for them and um just (laughs) really recently i took one of our kids to see um fiddler on the roof and that just made me think about um Yenta. Yenta. I was... The matchmaking um soul. And Laser Wolf, the greatest fictional name ever.
0: <laughs> I well, I was just, I was thinking about matchmaking while you were having that conversation, uh, or while you were saying that, I, because again, I, we think about arranged marriage, I think about your parents meeting up with their parents and saying, okay, like, the families have decided, but matchmaking is a type of marital arrangement, arranged marriage as well, and it's pretty popular... Again, I mean, even internet dating has a matchmaker component to it, depending on which site you use. So if I'm just using a site to meet new people, it's kind of on me. But if I'm in one of those sites like okay cupid or eharmony where there's like the algorithm that is entrusted to match you based on compatibility and it's filtering out people based on this algorithm the algorithm's making some of these choices for you um i mean ultimately it's your you still have autonomy in terms of do you want to go with that match but you're kind of trusting with a matchmaker service or with whatever um again you still have autonomy because you you can walk away but we are still relying on some of what is beneficial from the concept of arranged marriage, which is that the input of others can be really helpful in a process that's important. And I think that's kind of cool to think about.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, there, there definitely isn't arranged marriage at all without the concept of matchmaking. That's, yeah, that's all it is. It's, it's, um, I mean, it might be your parents that's doing it. It might be like a religious leader that's doing it, or it might just be a, a third party that you hire, or it might be, you know, an algorithm, you know, the invisible cartographer, you know, showing your your golden path and everything. That's a deep video game
0: theory a, thing. Yeah. yeah. I had a question and I don't know if it came up and this might be a good, unless you've got anything that was really glaring that we didn't talk about. There's one more big. Go thing. for it. No, no,
1: no, no, no. No, because
0: I think mine will be a good place to close. Okay,
1: the last big reason for arranged marriages that I was able to find is politics. Yeah, and this brings us to what would have been the famous arranged marriages, and I'm going to bring up one just so you can use your new lamps in the thumbnail. <laughs> I'm so excited. So Marie Antoinette and Louis the Sixteenth, right? They were 15 and 16, respectively when they were married and it was because of the whole seven years war and the uh what was a diplomatic revolution where prussia who was a big ally of france became an ally of britain and austria hungary who was a big ally of britain wanted to get in good with france and so marie antoinette is from is, a, is an austrian And uh, they send her over to marry the Dauphin of France, who's Louis the 16th, or he wasn't Louis the 16th at the time, but whatever his name was at the time. And then like a couple years later, they're like 19 and 20 years old and Louis's dad dies and now they're king and queen. And they lived happily ever after. Oh, until they got their heads cut off and put on pikes and stormed around Paris.
0: Which makes my lamps less exciting. (laughs) because <laughs> they're busts. Uh, I was trying to see if I i was Googling images of Louis Sixteenth because I know that um, my lamps are Marie Antoinette and one of the Louis, and I imagine probably Louis XVI. That's basically. the only one she
1: was married to. Well, yeah, yeah
0: that makes sense that it would be yeah. him. But I'm going to Google those lamps again and me put a link, um, but I'll put pictures up too. Uh, for context, Steve uh, bought me this pair of lamps I fell in love with in this antique shop um, for my birthday, and they are... Uh, People either love or hate them. I think they look like they're straight out of the haunted mansion, but they are these uh, antique uh, busts, like ceramic. ceramic busts of Marie Antoinette and Louis the Sixteenth. And I will put info about them and pictures up. And yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, and the last big topic that I saw come up over and over and over again when talking about arranged marriages is consanguineous marriage. It's, it's like a bloodline th- thing. Yeah, it's when you marry like a first cousin or uncle or, or, or uh, like uncle-niece or first or second cousin, but nothing beyond that.
0: Are you impressed at all that I knew that consanguineous was a bloodline word?
1: No, you watch lots of Sabrina and that <laughs> you sanguine a lot in that show.
0: But I knew that before that.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I thought
0: of it independent. <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs>
1: It is still <laughs> sorry. It is still wildly popular. Really? Yeah. In many parts of Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, 25 to 40% of all marriages are consanguineous. Wow.
0: Um, well, in that's many parts of
1: Northern Africa and Central Asia, 80% of all arranged marriages uh, are
0: consanguineous.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. In the parts of Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, 25 to 40% of all marriages are first cousin marriages. Okay. And then 80% of marriages in North Africa and Central Asia, Asia are consanguineous. Okay. It is largely practiced in, in many Islamic countries. Okay. Um, but forbidden in most Christian, Hindu, and Buddhist societies.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Yep. Yeah. Okay.
1: And that that is a it is so popular or not popular common that it was like a real rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. Like I was learning all about double first cousins.
0: What's a double first cousin?
1: So, it's let's say let's say that there's two sets of brother and sisters. Yes. And they marry each other. Okay. And so the brother from one sister from the other, sister from one brother so like, from the wait, other. So,
0: like, okay. So, okay. So, like, me and my brother, like, me and Bruce, yeah. and Aaron and Taylor.
1: Well, no, because you and Aaron are blood related. And no, all four of you are already cousins. Yes. No, this would be like
0: outside the family. Outside
1: so the family. So, this would
0: be like, um.
1: like, you and Bruce and some other person and his sister. Okay. And so. Bruce would marry the sister, you would marry the dude, Okay, right? Each of you has a boy and a girl.
0: Okay, so they're each other's first cousins twice. No. I was going to say, I don't get it.
1: <laughs> no, you don't yet, because I'm not done yet. Okay. Okay, so you and your brother and this other brother and sister marry each other, and each of each couple independently has a boy and a girl. Yeah. Those two... Also, marry each other. Okay. Any kids that they have will be double first cousins because they are cousins the same direction from both sides mother and father's side. They share the same grandparents on all sides.
0: No, but I thought your first cousin was that's what I was saying. Like, I thought that they'd be.
1: Oh, no, no, no. Maybe you're right.
0: Ah, yeah. Because well, they're the each other's first cousin already. Yeah. They would be double first cousins. Like the first generation.
1: It was a very confusing chart.
0: The very first generation would be double
1: first Yes. Okay.
0: Oh, what? In case you can't hear the tone of my voice. I'm making faces at Steve. Like I'm right. Trying to gaslight me out of my no first cousin. I'm just kidding. He wasn't doing that. Gaslighting is not a joke. (laughs) Huh, Natalie? (laughs) It's really not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So if you and your brother and this other couple or this other brother and sister had kids uh, or y'all the four of you got married to each other your kids, kids would be double then, first cousins could they share, share the same four grandparents on all, all ends i got that in one i'm editing everything else before now out
0: Aww. no i'm joking <laughs> <laughs> it's okay if you do <laughs> the episode can only be so long um okay so okay so what i was going to ask you was i'm oh, more am I, jump, am I jumping on your point but no I, I i think that's
1: Probably all I have. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was talked about with consanguineous marriages.
0: Yeah, I feel like we could do a whole podcast on just that. Yeah. Okay, so my question was, and I feel like I know the answer, but I feel like this really leaves out queer folks. Like, is there any scenario in the... Like, is anybody doing arranged marriage and also progressive where like, they're going to arrange for you to marry your same gender partner. No. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like that's so, It and I, I think that's my number one argument against it. Like the most obvious argument against it for me, like obviously autonomy, but in a lot of these situations, there's the couple has a level of veto power you know, and so not all of them, but there are many situations where the couple has ability and input and they're conspirators in this or co-conspirators in the situation. And so um, assuming that we remove the issue of consent, which is probably the really glaring number one issue is that if I can't consent to who I'm marrying, you know, and I can't opt out of the system, like consent issues are important. And I don't, I definitely don't mean to downplay those, but I think, just from like a systemic issue, this really does leave out queer folks in a big way.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so I wonder for folks who are in the um, queer community, but are also deeply tied to their religion and their culture, and maybe would like to take advantage of big traditions like this. I I wonder how that feels, you know? I wonder wonder what that, I, I imagine that people have talked about it. I imagine there's probably i probably could look that up and i probably will when we're done here but i imagine that that's got to cause some real cognitive dissonance um some real like competing identity identity discord there's a there's a a word for the concept i'm describing and i just can't think of it right now because i've a really bad headache but um yeah this just really doesn't doesn't consider lgbt folks nope at all
1: it sounds like a hallmark movie in the making though
0: (laughs) The the progressive version of an arranged marriage?
1: Well, I mean, it it gets there at the end. But at the beginning, it's still just going to be like a het arranged marriage. And then and, but you come le-
0: clean and, or you come out. Not come clean. You come out. The and parents you, push back. Eventually, they come around. And then but you're like, I still want to do it. I still want the big wedding. I just want you to matchmake for me for somebody I'm really into. And you need to know this about me to really properly matchmake for me. And then there's that. Yep. that's kind of it okay that's a cute idea hallmark do that let's write it oh that would be fun okay mm-hmm. a little fanfic <laughs> so <laughs> all right i like it okay so i think that we very thoroughly covered this episode yeah yeah i'm feeling
1: pretty good from this drink
0: are you is a good drink mm-hmm. i can't keep i hit my point where i was bringing my headache back so i can't drink anymore It's a bummer because it's very tasty, shmasty. Um that I will definitely be imbibing, maybe over the Christmas break. So yeah. yes. Um, all right, cool. Well, thank you all for listening. When we get together the next time, we're going to be uh, recording live from the speakeasy over at Aaron's house and talking about my thesis. So yeah, that is the plan, and I'll uh, keep you all updated on the on the Tickle Life socials about more of that. Cool. Super excited. All right. If you don't already, make sure you subscribe so you get notifications when new episodes drop. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on the iTunes.
2: Yep. Thank you, everybody. Happy holidays. Bye.